If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue in our Prioritize series together. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures in front of you, it will be behind me as we read it together. You can follow along on the screen. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, Paul writes to young Timothy saying, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, we, we continue in our prioritized series this morning, taking a look at a core value of ours that we've chosen to name biblical literacy. Biblical literacy. Now, see, we live in a culture, in a nation, in which 80% of American adults are able to read at at least an 8th grade level or above. Okay, So 80% of adults in America are, have some level of literacy. In other words, they're able to complete tasks that require comparing and contrasting information in things that they've read in articles or online or in magazines or newspapers. They can paraphrase the words of others and put them into their own words. They can make low-level inferences with regards to what they have read and how they should respond to that. We live in a culture in which information is literally at our fingertips 24-7-365 as well, right? Through smartphones, through computers, through tablets and phones. We can access nearly anything that we're looking for to read in a moment's notice. We also live in a culture where children are taught to read from an early age. It's a value in many homes, particularly in a more upper middle class, suburban context where education is of high value. Kids are taught to read in the home. They're taught to read in schools. They're taught to read through homeschooling, private schooling, public schooling. And they have all kinds of early childhood intervention therapists which can assist those kids who are struggling to develop that skill for whatever reason. We live in a culture in which literacy is cherished. Okay? In fact, the literate are advantaged oftentimes. But listen, I want to tell you something as well. We also live in a culture that is massively biblically illiterate. Illiterate when it comes to the Scriptures. Literacy is prized and cherished, but when it comes to the Bible, we are massively illiterate. Let me give you a few reasons why I think that. Look at the number, if you look at the number of self-identifying Christians who say they're still searching for the meaning of life, 
Or you look at the number of self-identifying Christians who say there's more than one way to have a relationship with God. In other words, it's not only by grace through faith and in Christ. There's other paths, and they all lead to the same place, right? We're all going to the same mountain to get to the same place. And there are many self-identifying Christians in what they would consider to be evangelical churches that believe there's more than one way to God. You, I, I've met people in, in my ministry career that have believed from the depths, depths of their hearts that somewhere in the book of Proverbs is buried this phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Right? You look at the number of self-identifying Christians who are persuaded that sex outside of marriage is okay as long as you love the person. You look at the number of self-identifying Christians who choose to live together before marriage and enjoy the benefits of the covenant without the commitment of the covenant. They don't see the implications of the Scriptures bearing forth in their lives because they're massively, biblically illiterate. We could say a lot more, but then we wouldn't have time for the rest of the sermon. But look, I think there's at least two reasons for this in our culture. And the first one is this. It's a famine. It's a famine. Now listen, there have been famines all throughout history, haven't there? You read about them in the Bible oftentimes. There are times in which the heavens turn to bronze, the authors of the Scriptures say. In other words, they become so glazed over with the sun, there are no clouds, there's no rain falling, that they look like bronze. And the earth begins to dry up and crack and become dusty and, 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 and void of life. Right, there are serious famines that take place across the globe. We had a not-so-serious famine here in the States back in 2015. It was called the Great Bluebell Famine. I don't know how some of us survived it, right? We made it through somehow. But listen, there are famines that take place throughout history, but there's a famine similar to, in our day and age, there's a famine similar to the famine described by the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 8. Listen to what he says. It's not a lack of bread or a lack of water. But listen to what Amos says, Amos 8, 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Of hearing the words of the Lord. And I believe with all my heart that, there, that we are living in a day in which there is a famine of hearing God's word, even amongst God's people in many churches. See, in some churches, the Sunday sermon, the Sunday sermon sounds like whatever book the pastor read recently. Okay, whatever, whatever principles that came forth from that book, he's sharing in the message that Sunday morning. And listen, there may be great helpful things that you might benefit from well in a seminar, but they are not the Word of God. They're not Scripture. And the, those, those sermons contain very little Scripture. They might have a scripture as a launching off point into whatever the pastor wants to talk about from whatever book that he read. There is a famine of God's word in many churches. But a second reason, I think, as well, that we are experiencing a lack of biblical literacy in our culture and even within churches, because not only is there a famine, but there's also frauds. Do you know that? There are also frauds. In other churches, listen, this is not just dispensing helpful information, even if it's not from Scripture, but it's dispensing harmful information, things that will warp our thinking, right? They will destroy our lives. Listen, we shouldn't be surprised by this either. In fact, just before Paul tells young Timothy about the nature and purpose of Scripture in the text that we read, if you go back up into the chapter, chapter uh, 3, he says this, evil people, verse 13, and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
And then just after that, in chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy in verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now listen, I want you to know, church, that that what Paul's describing in his day is very much happening in our day. Very much happening in our day. See, we live in a day in which people are being deceived and deceiving others by building podcast playlists filled with people who will tell them what they want to hear, but not what they need to hear. Happens over and over and over again every week. Listen, you don't have to look very far in order to find so-called preachers and teachers who feed you with foolishness packaged as wisdom. Okay? So there's famine, there's a famine and there's frauds. I think that's why there's a lack of biblical literacy in the church. And so what do we do with this? I think Paul gives Timothy a prescription to remedy the situation and tells us how we ought to develop biblical literacy. So we want to look at this morning in the text that we read together. And here's what I want to say. If we're going to develop biblical literacy, listen, church, we have to continue in the Word. Continue in the Word. In verse 14, Listen to what Paul tells Timothy. He says, he says, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Now that word continue could be translated as abide. It could be translated as remain. In other words, stay in, live in what you have learned and what you've been persuaded of, what you have built your life on, what you've firmly believed. Now listen, the question then is, why do I say that what he had learned and firmly believed is the Word of God or the Scriptures. Let me give you two reasons, and they're right here in this text. In verse 15, Paul refers to the sacred writings that Timothy had been acquainted with. The sacred writings, which were the Old Testament texts that had been passed down and preserved through history and had come to young Timothy. Second reason I think that it's the Word or the Bible or the Scriptures is because in verse 15 he actually uses the term Scripture when he says all Scripture, sacred writings, Scripture, what you've learned, what you firmly believed, all that's referring to the same thing, church. The Word of God as it had been revealed, as it had been preserved, as it had been taught, as it had been adhered to throughout the people of God in their history. Now notice here too, this is a command, it's not a suggestion. (laughs) Okay, it's an imperative. In other words, Paul's not saying this, Timothy, I have found what works for me. It may not work for you, but it works for me. Timothy, you need to go find what works for you. That's not what he says, right? He says, Timothy, I'm commanding you. It's an imperative. Continue in what you've learned. Continue in what you firmly believed. Right? Paul gives this command in a particular context, as we said earlier. It's not all that different from our own. Not all that different from our own. In Timothy's time, there were false teachers rising up and circulating through the churches, drawing people away from what Jude calls the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Paul is saying to Timothy, he was living and ministering in that day, which is like this day. He says, in that day, things were going from bad to worse. Teachers are being deceived and deceiving others. He says, in this kind of day, he says to Timothy, and I think he would say to us in the church, in this kind of day, remain in the Word, continue in the Word. In other words, don't go off looking for alternative sources of truth to build your life upon. Because the Word of God is vital to your spiritual health and vitality. 
Let me see if I can break it down for you this way, right? So if a doctor told you, if you went to the doctor, doctor, I'm having some issues, and the doctor told you, yeah, you've got a heart condition, and, but if you take this medication, it will cure you, right? So if you take it every day, what would you do? You'd set an alarm on your iPhone, wouldn't you, to remind yourself to take it every single day, right? It would go off, beep, 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 beep. Right? In fact, you might not even need an alarm on your phone if the doctor told you, listen, what ails you, there's a cure for, but you have to access it. You have to take it every single day. You might not need a reminder on your iPhone. You might not need a notification on your smartwatch. You might not need any kind of calendar appointment that you create because you would want to take it because you knew that it was vital for your health. If the doctor told you there was a vitamin or a supplement that would clear up your complexion right, and help your digestive system flush the toxins from your body more efficiently, it had been proven, what would you do? You would take it. Right? The doctor told you there is a medication that's available that would eliminate your nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, and diarrhea. You would take it. Why? Why? Because you wanted to get better. You want it to be healthy. What if there was something that would give you the energy and strength to do things that you could not do before? And it had been tested and proven by person after person and generation after generation. What would you do? You would take it. Listen, church. The Bible tells us that spiritually our hearts are sick. They're sick. Jeremiah 17, 9, the prophet, the words of the prophet say it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Listen, in other words, Jeremiah is saying we cannot trust our own hearts. We can't place our faith in how we feel. We cannot blindly follow wherever they lead us. We can't base our lives on our emotions. We can't let our hearts be our God because while our feelings, listen, they are always real. Do you know your feelings are always real? But your feelings are not always true. They're not always true. And as a result, what we might end up doing is destroying ourselves and others when we order our lives around real feelings, but false feelings. Things that don't correspond to reality. Things that are not true. And God has given us the antidote, the medication, the prescription that we need. And when we neglect it, listen church, we do so to our own demise. Some of us wonder why we struggle to overcome sinful patterns in our life. Some of us wonder why we struggle with the motivation to serve. Some of us wonder why we feel so malnourished when it comes to evangelism and sharing our faith. Some of us feel wonder why we just can't put sin to death in our life. It might be, it might be that we've neglected the prescription of continuing in what you've learned and have firmly believed the sacred writings, the Scriptures. So continue in the Word. Grow in your biblical literacy. Understand the Bible more clearly in 2020 than you did in 2019. 
And here's why. I'm going to give you four reasons why. Because Paul moves on from there into verses 16 and 17, and he, tells, he talks about the nature and purpose of Scripture. And I think there's at least four reasons why the Bible is able to help us grow in biblical literacy, right? We ought to prioritize it in 2020. And here are the four reasons. First of all, the Word is powerful. It is powerful. In the first part of verse 16, we read these words. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And the text teaches us literally this, that all Scripture is God-exhaled or God-expired. And if it's God-expired, then it is God-inspired. As He inspired His prophets and apostles to write down the words that He was inspiring as He breathed them out, as they came forth from His own mouth. And listen, I want you to know, church, whenever God speaks, whenever God exhales, it brings forth two things. First, brings forth life. It brings forth life. If you go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God created everything. How? Did He create a manufacturing plant and begin to roll things off an assembly line? What did He do to bring everything that you and I touch, taste, see, or feel into existence? He spoke. Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. And then you come to Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, when God forms our first father from the dust of the ground. I want you to hear what it says in Genesis 2, 5 through 7. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. See, when God breathes out, when God exhales, in fills the man's lungs with life. And he lives from something that was dead. God's Word, His voice, His breath, when it's breathed out, there's power to that to create life, church. That's why you and I are here. But also, secondly, God's Word is powerful not only to bring life, but new life. New life. Listen, I love this vision in Ezekiel chapter 37. If you're familiar with the Bible, in the book of Ezekiel, that's where God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I want you to go prophesy to a valley of dry bones. I can, I, I, look, if, if I was Ezekiel, I'd be like, what? Now, I'm serious, Ezekiel. Go, go preach to the valley of dry bones. I want to read it to you. Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 1. Listen to what the, the Word of God says. The, the hand of the Lord was upon me, speaking Ezekiel, it was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And He led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. In other words, I, I have no idea, God, but it's only left to your providence. Then, verse 4, 
He said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So what does Ezekiel do? Verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breathe, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, and exceedingly great army. Ezekiel goes out into the valley, sees all these dry bones that are dry to the point of being brittle. They're not corpses. They're skeletons. Can you imagine this vision Ezekiel sees before him and God says, preach. Do you know that's a little how I feel every Sunday morning? (laughs) Right? When I come before people, and I don't, I don't know everyone's heart in here, but I, I'm not so naive to think that there's not people in here who are still dead. Maybe like zombies, like walking around, but they're still spiritually dead. And God says, listen, what's going to bring them to life is not a laser light show. What's going to bring them to life It's not smoke machines. What's going to bring them to life is none of this stuff. What's going to bring them to life is you preaching the Word of God. And I feel a little like, all right, here we go again. And so Ezekiel shows up and he preaches. And what happens? Can you imagine? Just what Ezekiel saw. All of a sudden the bones begin to shake. The rattling sound as they begin to connect. Like the femur begins to be shoved into the hip socket right? The ribs begin to form and take their place into the sternum. And all of a sudden, there's these ligaments and tendons that begin to grow on them. Okay? Like, man, Hollywood can't do justice to the scene. And skin begins to clothe those bones again. And he says, they were alive. They were, they were there formed as bodies, but there was no life in them yet. It says, prophesy to the Wind, and the wind comes from the four corners. The Holy Spirit comes and awakens them, regenerates them, causes them to live where there was no life before. Listen, church, the Word of God is powerful because when God breathes, He brings us to life. He gives us existence. And whenever He breathes out, when His Holy Spirit comes to regenerate a heart, He takes dry, dead bones and He brings them to life so that they might know Him and walk with Him. They might serve Him and enjoy Him. So continue in the Word because it's powerful. Listen, I remember traveling to Russia back in 2007 and as I went from flat to flat, you know what a flat is? It's like an apartment building in other parts of the world. So I went from flat to flat visiting with these individuals who had come to faith in Jesus under communist regimes. 
Story after story, person after person recounted the same thing. They said they were going through the belongings of someone that they knew, a friend or a family member, and they found a Bible that had been hidden. And so they found it, they picked it up, and they began to read. And as they began to read, without commentaries, as they began to read without sermons and podcasts, as they began to read without life groups and small groups and Christian community, as they began to read without Sunday services, as they began to read, the Holy Spirit took the Word of God, flipped the switch on their life, and brought them to life from the dead, all because they opened the Word and they read. It's powerful, church. Second of all, Continue in the Word because it is not only powerful, but it's profitable. It is profitable. Look, in verse 16, we read that Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, if something's profitable for us, it means it does us good, doesn't it? It's beneficial for us somehow, some way, some shape, or some form. Okay, It brings us some kind of profit or benefit. Now, there's all kinds things in life that are beneficial to us, right? But I want you to consider this with me. The Word is not profitable to us in the way that makeup is profitable. Okay? Now, I don't have any first-hand experience with makeup. That probably puts some of your consciences at rest. But listen, makeup is profitable. Okay? Some of you are like, amen. Amen. Makeup is profitable. But what makeup does is this. The way that it's beneficial is that it conceals the imperfections. Right, that we're looking at in the mirror. I'm not casting any judgment on anybody. I'm just saying that's what it does. Okay? That's what it does. And it has benefit in that. Okay? But the word is not beneficial in the way that makeup is beneficial to conceal our imperfections. But the word is beneficial. It's profitable for us in the way that good quality fuel is profitable and beneficial for an internal combustion engine. Okay, Because without good quality fuel, with, with diluted fuel, or with bad gas, what happens to the engine? It cannot perform in the way that it was engineered and designed to perform. In fact, it may even seize up. So the so word is profitable, not in the way that makeup is profitable, but the way in good gas is profitable, and that it fuels our life. It builds something in us. I want to tell you, it builds two things in your life that Paul talks about here. First of all, it builds our doctrine. It solidifies what we believe. Listen to what Paul says in the text. He says that Scripture is profitable for teaching and for reproof. Those two words, when they show up in the Bible, in the New Testament, they refer to the transmission of information. Information is being disseminated. Information is being transmitted. People are being taught positively and reproved, which means, in other words, their false thinking and false understandings are being corrected and reshaped into what is accurate and what is true. So there's a positive side of that. There's a negative side of that. Teaching and reproof. Transmission of information is going on. And in that way, the Word is beneficial because it functions like an anchor in our lives. So that every wind and wave of doctrine that blows through this generation or next generation or the next generation after that does not blow the church corporately or you personally off course into destructive ways of thinking. 
So it is profitable in that it builds our doctrine. See, there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints, and it is found in Scriptures. Charles Spurgeon once said it this way. I love the way he says it. Never be afraid of the Bible. If there's a text of Scripture that you dare not meet, humble yourself until you can. If your creed and Scripture do not agree, cut your creed to pieces, but make it agree with this book. If there be anything in the church to which you belong, which is contrary to the inspired word, leave that church. Strong language from Spurgeon. Because the Bible is profitable for us in that it builds our doctrine. It gives us an anchor so that we're blown back and forth. But we're stable in the midst of prevailing winds that circulate around us. But it also is profitable in a second area of our life. Not only in our doctrine, but in our devotion, church. It builds our devotion. Right? Paul says it's profitable for correction and training in righteousness. See, these two expressions in the New Testament are used to describe not the transmission of information or teaching, but rather our practice, our lifestyle, our conduct. Right? So in that way, it's profitable to us like a scalpel would be profitable to a surgeon. Right? See, we live in a day and age in which it is, it is uh, uh, popular, perhaps, to take the things that are palatable from the Bible in our culture and receive them, the things that are unpalatable from the Bible in our culture, and reject them. Right? And so what you end up with is a Bible that's, and a God that's formed in our image, not us being formed into His Okay? But the question is, whenever you encounter a passage of Scripture in the Word that you feel like, right, might be a real feeling, it's not a true feeling, but you encounter a passage of Scripture you feel like needs to be removed or neglected or ignored or updated, then you ask, stop and ask yourself this question. Listen, church, does this truth need to be cut out of the Bible or does this truth need to cut something out of me? Does it need to cut something out of me? To build my devotion to God holistically in obedience to Him. We've got to move. That's the second thing. So it's pro- powerful, it's profitable. Third, the word is productive. It's productive. Listen, in verse 17, we read that God's aim in giving us the scriptures is that we would not only be informed, but we'd also be equipped. We'd be equipped. Verse 17, that the man of God, the purpose of the Scriptures, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? Now listen, we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. We are saved by grace, through faith, and in Christ. This is not of ourselves so that no one may boast. But on the very heels of that, what does Paul say in Ephesians 2.10? That we would walk in the good works that He's prepared for us in advance. So listen, there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. But once God has been gracious to save, He's got a lot for us to do. A lot for us to do. Right? Let me see if I can break it down for you this way. There's, there's a difference, you know this, right? There's a difference between being disqualified for something and being unqualified for something. You know that? See, being disqualified for something insinuates that something, I've done something that would prohibit me from participating. Okay? So I've cheated in some sort of way. I've lied in some sort of way. Right? I've, been, I've, I've, I've bent the rules in some sort of way, like an athletic competition. Okay? If you get caught with performance-enhancing drugs in your system, you're disqualified because you've done something. Okay? But to be unqualified 
mean, doesn't mean that you necessarily done anything positively to disqualify yourself from participation, but to be unqualified means you just kind of lack the skill or the ability in order to be able to participate at whatever level you'd be performing at. Does that make sense? I mean, you with me on those two differences? Okay, so listen. Let me tell you, let me say it this way. Apart from the word incarnate, who is that? Jesus. Apart from the word incarnate, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? John chapter one. Apart from the word incarnate, every single one of us in this room is disqualified from relationship with God. Every single person. We're disqualified from relationship with God. Because of our sin. But listen, for those whom God has qualified by grace through faith and in Christ, listen, He wants you to not be unqualified for the works that He has prepared for you in advance. The good works that you are to walk in. That you are to to achieve and accomplish by His grace and with His power going forth. And the way that He equips us for those good works is through His Word, church. That's what the Bible says right there in verse 17. That we might be complete and equipped for every good work. What kind of good works? The good work of evangelism. Of evangelism. Of seeing lost souls converted to faith in Jesus. Listen, it is a good thing to have a personal story, a testimony about how God has saved you, about how God has been gracious to you. But I want to say something, and I want you to hear the heart of what I'm saying this morning. Is that apart from objectively bringing people back to the Word back to the person of Jesus as revealed in the Bible, then your story is no better than their story. They've got a story too about what's worked for them in life. Just like you've got a story about what's worked for you in life. And I'm not saying that you should neglect sharing that story. As you share that story though, you bring people back to the truth of who Jesus is revealed in the Bible Because they're not experiencing some abstract version of God's love, but a very concrete one in Jesus Christ. The Word equips you for the work of evangelism, for sanctification, for putting sin to death in your life, for mortifying it. I love the way the Puritans used to talk about that. Mortifying sin, right? Killing it, squashing it, destroying it. And how do you do that? You guys know as well as I do, many of you do, that in Ephesians chapter 6, there's all kinds of defensive armor that is listed, but there's only one offensive weapon. And what is that? The sword of the Spirit, which is the what? The Word of God. Right? And so you're defended by the breastplate. You're defended by the belt. You're defended by the helmet. You're defended by all these other pieces of armor. But there's one thing to go on the offensive with, and it's the sword as you seek to put to death sin in your life. Listen, I want to say this to you this morning. The reason some of us have sin struggles that we have never found freedom from is because we have not continued in the Word. We've neglected it to our own demise. What about the good work of prayer? The good work of prayer. Listen, I don't know about you, but there are some times in life I don't know what to pray. And I'm comforted by the fact that the Spirit knows and intercedes before, for me. 
But you know what I do often in those times when I don't know what to pray? I, the, the, what, what happens is the scriptures put words in my mouth to pray. Listen, in 2016 and 2017 was a year of, of darkness for me. It was a year of depression for me. It was a year of struggle for me. It was a year in which I did not know oftentimes which end was up. I don't know if you've ever been there. It was a painful, painful season. And I can remember, listen, there was a, there's a Christian artist, her name is Sandra McCracken, who wrote a song called Send Out Your Light and Your Truth. And that song is a psalm taken directly from Psalm 43. And I want you to hear the words of that psalm. Because I listened to that song over and over and over again. Because I didn't know what to pray. So the Scriptures gave voice to a prayer in my life. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go around in mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let, me. let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. O oh God my God. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him. My salvation and my God. And I would listen to that song, which was verbatim, word for word from this psalm. And I would pray, God. And every time she would get to the end of the song in which the crescendo would build to hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. It would be like a prayer and petition going up to Him. See, the Scripture equips you for the good work of prayer, but also for the good work of encouragement. The breathing of life into those who are struggling. See, when you don't know what to pray, the Scriptures put words in your mouth. And when you don't know what to say, the Scriptures put words in your mouth as well. Earlier this week, a friend of mine, he's been like a brother to me for the last 13 years of life, went into the physician for his first chemotherapy treatment. He's diagnosed with cancer over the Christmas holidays. They told their children the Thursday after Christmas, as he had a port put in to begin to receive chemo. And he went in to receive his first chemo and immunotherapy, all kinds of different cocktails they're mixing up to feed down in that port to combat this disease that's growing in his body. What do you say in a moment like that? Love you, brother. Praying for you. Well, Yes. But there's so much more to say, church. So I sent him Psalm 62, verses 5 to 8. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. For only He is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Which means, think about that. 
pause, reflect. Let that settle deep in your soul. Listen, there's all other kinds of good works, but my goodness, we are short on time. Fourth, fourth, the Bible is also personal. It's personal. See, the Bible is ultimately about a person. Look at what Paul says in verse 15. He says that the Scriptures called the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now remember, it's interesting to note, Paul's not talking about the book of Acts. He's not talking about the gospel accounts. He's not talking about the epistles that he had written or Peter had written or James had written or John had written. He's talking about the Old Testament. And he's saying those scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus. In other words, the Old Testament church is a roadmap to the Redeemer. So these are not two disconnected books or collections of writings, but they are one seamless story that carries forward God's redemptive work in human history. That the Old Testament's pointing forward to the work of Jesus in so many ways. And I love the way Tim Keller phrases it. He phrased it over and over again. I heard him say it many, many times. I don't know where he got it from. It wasn't original to him, but I'll give him credit for it because he's the first place I heard it. But he says this. I want you to hear his words. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden whose obedience has been imputed to us. He's the true and better Abel who though innocently slain has blood that now cries out for not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. So like Jacob, only we might receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between God and his people who mediates a new covenant Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Which are you and I. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. He is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death would pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not really about you. It's about Him. The Word is personal, church. And as you encounter Jesus in the Bible, as you see it being about Him, 
It awakens and kindles your heart to love a person and be formed into his image. Not just a set of beliefs. Not just a moral code. But to be formed into the image of a person. Now I've got to say something quickly about what do we do with all this. <laughs> okay? Let me give you three things. Quickly. If you're going to prioritize the word and continue in it in 2020, you've got to do three things. You've got to be in it, you've got to be under it, and you've got to let it be in you. Okay? First of all, you've got to be in it. Read the Bible. I don't know how simpler of an application I can give. Read the Bible. I remember in college, um, buying textbooks. Ah, some of you remember that too. How painful that was every semester going in and laying out hundreds of dollars on the counter to buy textbooks that you were only going to use for one semester. So I can remember in college, in an entry-level religion course, Old Testament course, I bought a Bible that they were recommending for that course, but I bought it from the used section. Right? That's what a lot of us did in order to save money there in college. We bought all the used books, as long as those editions were still being used in the classroom. And so I bought this Bible and I put it up on my shelf and I can remember as I sat and studied at my desk in my dorm room, I can remember every once in a while looking up at that Bible and on the spine of that Bible was this big yellow sticker with black print that said, used. And I wonder how many of us, if God were to take a sticker and place it upon the spine of our Bibles, would it say the very same thing? Would it say used? Or when we crack it open every Sunday, or there's still pages that are kind of, you know what I'm saying? You know, when you get that fresh Bible smell, when they're kind of stuck together, going, <laughs> and you open it up. I wonder how many of us, that's every Sunday for us, because it's not being opened day after day after day. We're not taking it in, being nourished by it. Be in it, church. Find a reading plan that works for you. We're going to send some out this week, some references, resources that you could adopt individual as a family but be in it second of all be under it be under it prioritize being with God's people under God's word Sunday after Sunday when it's preached listen you've heard me say it before and I'll say it again this morning and I'll say it again in the future listen make your aim to go four for four in a five Sunday month make it your aim to go five for five to be with us as we open God's Word and as we sit under its authority and allow it to search our hearts and our minds, to change and challenge us, to comfort and encourage us. Listen, because any given Sunday, any given Sunday, God may set your world right side up through the preaching of His Word. Any given Sunday, He may peel the layers of sin off of your life and free you as you encounter His Word. Right? That may mean for some of us that on some Sundays when we have family in town, we may have to say to them, listen, you don't have to go with us, but we're going to church. Well, we'd love for you to come with us. It may mean for some of us that on Saturday nights, right, we call a closing time a little earlier Right, than we used to in order that we might wake up refreshed and come in on Sunday morning and be able to rejoice in being under God's Word as it's preached and as we sing it together. Right? But be under it. Be under it as it's preached, but also as it's taught. In February 2nd, listen, on Sunday mornings, we're going to launch a Sunday morning Bible study through the book of Galatians. 
okay? Be different than our preaching, okay? It's going to be um, more content-driven and heavy, okay? I hope that my sermons are content-heavy, um, but it's, it's going to be less illustrations and things like that. It's going to be more, let's open the Bible, read it together, understand what it says, okay? For those of you who perhaps have never had a rooting in the Scriptures, maybe been in life groups, which are great for relational connection and praying together and being accountable to each other and encouraging each other and serving alongside of each other, but you've never been in a more formal classroom setting, right, where there's not kids running. Some of you are like, ah, I get it. There's not kids running around everywhere distracting you from what you're trying to study. right? Come on Sunday mornings with us at 9.15 here at High. And study the book of Galatians with us this spring. And see how God might use that in your life to build your doctrine and build your devotion. Okay? So be under it. And then finally, let it be in you. Let it be in you. Be in it. Be under it. Let it be in you. Let it abide in you. One of the ways you can do that is by committing it to memory. What if you were to memorize one verse a month in 2020? You know what that would be? That would be 12 more verses next, this time next year than you had today. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Recall it. Chew on it in your mind. Let it nourish you in your heart. Let it be in you. Obey it. Order your life around it, church. There's, God uses all sorts of disciplines in our lives to grow us. Fasting, prayer, silence, solitude. But there is no discipline that can replace His own revelation. There is none. I'll leave you with this quote, and I promise I'm done. William Gurnall, a Puritan pastor, said this, Shall God leave but one book to care and study? And shall it not be read? Shall we be told there is so rich a treasure laid up in its mind, and we continue to beg so beggarly in our knowledge, rather than take a little pains by digging in it to come by it? The canker and rust of our gold and silver, which is got with harder labor than is required here, will rise up in judgment against many and say, You could drudge and trudge for us, that are now turned to rust and dust, but could walk over the field of the word where an incorruptible treasure lay and would lose it rather than your sloth. Prioritize the word in 2020. Let's become a biblically literate body. We pray for us. Father, your word is a treasure. It is more precious than gold, more valuable than silver, than the most costly of gemstones. Father, may we as a church be like a deer that pants after You and that comes to Your Word day after day to find You, to hear from You, to rejoice in You, to be encouraged by You. And may we continue in Your Word that it might be powerful in our life. It might be profitable for us. That it might be productive in us, preparing us for all the good works you have prepared for us in advance. It might be qualified to walk in those and do those sufficiently and well. And might we meet Jesus every time we open it. So may we be in it as a church. May we be under it as a church. And may it be in us.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.